0: This is Michael Cox for the InCommon Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Esther Zeladon, a senior development advisor, former diplomat, president and founder of OptiMax International and at b.act.change. Under these capacities, Esther serves as a senior consultant to international agencies, serves on NGO boards and coaches individuals and businesses. I met Esther through a colleague of mine, Freddie Payton, who directs the Dominican NGO AgroFrontera, Esther has also collaborated with Freddie during her time working for the United States Agency for International Development, or USAID, in the Dominican Republic. Esther describes the importance of genuine listening in this work, as well as having a sense of one's mission, purpose, and vision. She argues that, too often, development practitioners view development projects as checkboxes due to time and resource constraints. She also describes how such practitioners experience burnout due to a lack of intrinsic engagement that feeds their values and can overly exert their own expertise to establish an authoritative identity in their work. These dynamics can lead to projects that don't meet or fit with local needs and goals, as has often been documented in the literature on international development. Finally, we talked about how we might make a transition to more locally driven development in the context of an overall top-down framework that requires that development professionals be accountable to funders. This represents an ongoing tension for practitioners that ascribe to the localization movement that Esther describes and is playing an important role in. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Esther Zelenon. I mean, no, what I was, as I was saying, like when I got my PhD like a million years ago, I guess it was 12 years ago, I wasn't sold on the idea of being a professor. And so, of course, like you, you think about some of the alternatives and a lot of it's basically government or NGOs for folks that have like a PhD in environmental policy, governance, conservation, that like nexus of things. And so, I would have really benefited from a conversation with folks who had gone down a career path, not in academia. Cause I feel like once, when you're in like, you know, the hallowed halls, it, 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 it's hard to kind of imagine what it's like out them, uh, yeah. outside of them. And you kind of feel like, even if people aren't telling you like, oh, you can, you can do something that's not in academia. That's, that's fine. Like you still like internalize these norms. I think that's like, it's kind of in the water that this is what you should also be doing. I feel like a lot of us feel that pressure. Yes which I've never liked. Did you, did you feel that way at any point when you were like a PhD student uh, at Berkeley? It was.
1: Yes. And it was, it was a difficult choice. I remember I was thinking about it because in my, well, let me backtrack a little bit. It's when I was an undergrad. It's like I did summer at NASA. I did a summer in Costa Rica in the field. And then I worked at the national lab and, and then I went to go work like in a university lab. And I was trying to get the lay of the land. Exactly what you're saying? I'm like, what is it like working in all these different pieces? And I'm like, where do I fit in? Um, and so I knew off the bat, like working in Costa Rica, like I liked the field, but I didn't wanna be a field ecologist. I was like, no, I don't wanna live in the rainforest forever. And then like, I really wanna interact more with like more communities, not be so on the micro scale. And then like, I learned like the lab that I didn't want to just sit on a computer all day. I was like, no, computer modeling, not my thing either. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, so what's left? And then the, um, I did like, um, one of the summers in the, one of the labs it was university of Miami. It was like a marine biology lab. And that was kind of like applied. Cause it was kind of like you, you were in a lab, but you were collecting specimens. And the same thing with NASA, I was working on a remote sensing project and you could see the appliedness. So when I was looking at a PhD program at that time, environmental science was not super popular and there was very few schools in that. And so like really the choices were like Yale school of forestry. And then there was like these, I don't know, these departments that kind of had put a little bit of environmental in them, but more part of like a harder science. So I remember I applied to like Santa Barbara and there was Berkeley, there was Michigan, but they were in and, and the university of Miami Marines but they were all still kind of like a sub uh, sector with environmental kind of like plugged in. There wasn't Mm -hmm. like now you see full schools on a whole environmental science interdisciplinary. Um, So the closest I found to that was Berkeley. Um, It was an environmental science policy management where I was like, okay, still it was still at that time like departments still had like specific, you know departments of insect biology or remote sensing. Or they had political ecology, but I was like, well, you know, there I can at least take a range of subjects, and there's at least an interdisciplinary lens. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of already knew I wanted to go that direction, and that's what led me there. But I had the same um, questions, I guess, where I was like, okay, so now what? Like, do I want to go into academia? Do I want to go into government? Um, and at that time, I didn't even know the whole world or sphere. exactly what you're saying, like. I had read about, like, the World Bank and IDB and, like, you know, dependent development. It was at a certain angle, <laughs> the type of reading and literature I was reading then. And,
0: um, but Can I ask you what point, that angle was?
1: You know, the angle of more negative, I would say, more mm-hmm. about yeah, loan, you know, it was it was more on the angle that loans and, but not, um, how do I say this? I felt like it's it didn't give the full picture of okay. all the dynamics that, that you face, I guess, when you work at these banks that I then understood later in working with government. And I think I would have benefited from understanding like the whole sphere that there's like a contracting world. There's a, there's a the bank that does a type of development. Right. And then there's like USAID and there's the, there's country development agencies. While at that time, the lens I only had was all the horror stories of what the banks had done in certain countries or, I mean, the negative line. I mean, there, I mean, it was more like for you to learn, right, from the past mistakes and how do you apply it in a different way. Um, so a lot of that, I felt like my education was based on these are the bad things that have happened in the past in terms of development, but not a lot of like, this is where the current state is.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: if you want to make a difference, you can go on these different paths. So the only one that was clearly... Um, advertised because I was part of this, um, well, I was president of the Latino graduate students in science and engineering. And um, so I was always recruiting undergraduates in diverse field, fields into STEM at all these different conferences. And then from there, um, I, I was part of also a fellowship program, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was all on climate change. And we had these like series of speakers that then I would also bring into the recruitment aspect on the AAAS fellowship. And that's where I learned about this fellowship that brings like scientists into government. And I thought, okay, well, that's a good um, learning point for me if that, if this is for me. So I was like, it's a two-year fellowship. You learn everything about government you get placed in an agency and I will have like a better like lens about how you integrate the two. Um, but definitely I went through that where I was like, I know I wanna be applied. But at that mm-hmm. time, the only avenue I saw was that one, and 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 I loved AAA's. Um, okay, I, I, I think,
0: yeah. yeah, well, I didn't realize that you you did one of those. So you did you did a AAA's yeah. fellowship. Okay.
1: Yeah, I did that first. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, but I'd love. I want to ask you about that experience, but also, could you before we jump to that, could you summarize what you did for your PhD dissertation? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So I had an opportunity because I had applied for my, I got my own funding, external funding. Um, so I, I got two sources of funding. So I was able to create my own project. Of course, with the help of my committee and, you know, it's like, it's a collaborative effort. Um, so I looked at land use and land cover change in Nicaragua. Hmm. But what I really was looking at was more the intersection between science and people. So I, what I was, what I wanted to mesh and like, at least bring that openness is, I think there was this book that inspired me, it was called Pixels and People.
0: Oh, I've and heard it of that. Was
1: like, yeah. So it was like remote sensing and then how do you integrate all these satellite imagery, right? That you look at over time about how something changes with what's really going on. And it looked like the first of its kind of a book, but it it, it still didn't touch too much on the people part. Um, but it did like open your eyes and like we need to look at this and so I I wanted to take it to the next level Uh, okay I'm going to I have the remote sensing imagery over time and if you looked at it you could tell one story but what's the story right I mean we could tell five different stories of looking at imagery but so how how do we Mesh the two together and like we actually go hear the voices from the field of what that story is and tell the story with the images but i what i was really really interested in is at the end like my title kind of changed because i was looking at the effects the aftermath of of the war in Nicaragua as okay. a land use land cover change during the war and but that kind of evolved. When I first picked my project, it was really looking at people and pixels. And then, as it evolved, and I went to the field, I—that's the story. Then I honed in on because okay. it's—it was like it was like I read this paper, and I and I can't remember from who, but it was like during the war that they were talking about. Oh, look, war actually leads to reforestation in some areas, and they used this part of Nicaragua as an example. And I was kind of arguing that, sure, in the imagery it shows as reforestation, um, but it's more like a pause. Because in the end, like the deforestation tripled after that. It was just happens to be that the way that um, they displaced people during the war and then where the camps were. And then once it became, once they had to then, um, after the war give, I forgot how how they call it, but they had to give them parcels of land. You know, everyone kind of just,
0: is that part of the agrarian reform process yes
1: sort of not well it was actually it's more they call it post-conflict so after the war there's um there's a specific name that's not coming to my mind right now but basically it was what they gave to each person as a result of post-war conflict okay yeah so basically the fighters who fought there got an exchange, right? An exchange of arms, this and that, you can say. But then at the end, it got really messy because they never really got the land titles and ended up coming into just informal settlements. But they were promised this land after fighting in the war. But then there was another complications with you know the Contras, right? They brought in soldiers from Honduras and then those people were not part of that agreement but then they couldn't go back. And so they kind of also settled in there and they were not given any technical training. So my whole dissertation talks about that, right? How like it's a pause, I guess. It's not that the war, like I would say, led to reforestation. It was Mm -hmm. just more it led to changes of the way people were moving and, and the populations. And then you had all these movements of different populations of people, right? From the to the U.S., to urban. And then you had the area there, right, where they got settlements, informal settlements, and then combined with the lack of technical training.
0: I mean, it sounds like the way you're talking about it, Esther, right, you, you obviously have like this appreciation for how much, how complicated it was. And I mean, I think one of the challenges we also have in these projects is that things don't stop happening. But at some point, the dissertation has to stop. Did you exactly. have Did you have a challenge, (laughs) like deciding what you were going to ultimately include and what you were going to like, because it's annoying, right? It's like, Hey, this thing's really interesting and important, but I'm not going to talk about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't even include, I would say not even half my interviews in there, right? Because I had to focus it. So I focused it more on, these are the images, this is what's going Mm -hmm. on, these are some testimonials, but there was so much more interesting stuff on like, especially like, um, conflict management reconciliation that was super interesting that i was like you could do a whole dissertation just on that and how did these people then later come together and actually live together and come in agreement um so a lot of interesting facets so at the end i mean basically i just i had well one my funding ended and then i was like okay i need to be a ta and i was like i just need to just end it here and then i also got really frustrated i think um You were mentioning it that okay so i did this dissertation right Mm -hmm. but i felt like what did i leave them with even though i was really conscious of when i did the interviews to make sure that you know uh, they got compensation right at at that time i studied what kind of compensation would be appropriate and one of the things was polaroid photos they all wanted photos of their families yeah. And so they wanted real photos that they could print out. And so, you know, they, we had all that built in, but I felt like that wasn't enough. Like, I feel like I, I took part of their time and I value time. And in exchange, like I understood from the end of it that one of their big things that they really needed and wanted and were very aware of was technical training. They really wanted a vocational school because they didn't want to move anymore anymore. And so, like, there was this, like, theory of, for example, all these theories that came out on, like, land use and degradation, right, that people keep moving and they move to the next place that they can then grow some agriculture. So, like, a serial
0: depletion narrative kind of thing?
1: Yeah. And okay. they, and they, um, and I felt like it was very generalized because in this population, they didn't want to move anymore. Mm. They wanted to stay there. Um, they were just like, I just want you to teach me how to better use my land. So I could stay here longer. But I felt at that time I was just a PhD student. And I'm like, I can't um give that to you. Right. And um I I started, I remember this small, I tried at that time. I didn't, I didn't have like the full skill set I have now. So I tried, I tried to open an NGO and, and get some initial seed funding and all that, but it was, it was like a lot more complicated than I thought, and that's when I was like, okay, you know, let me think of something else, right, I think I need to come back to this, this idea later, but it was really hard understanding, like, um, you know, talking to all these group people, bringing these groups together to talk to each other, where they, you know, they had trusted me with, what they wanted and needed and not being able at that moment. So that's what led me into like, okay, I want to go into development where they fund, you know, initiatives that, you know, ideally that communities are voicing and see what I, what I learned through that process and how I can contribute there. And so that's how that path led into me um, wanting to, instead of academia, go into development. But I did have to do I did have to do academia in between that because it was during the recession, and so the first gig I got actually for AAA's, and at that time AAA's required, um, it was part of their thing like rec- I don't remember if it was required recommended three years of job experience. So I went to go work at in Ecuador as a visiting professor, and they would just hire me for different semesters. And actually, I taught something totally different energy. On mm. um, um, renewables and um, energy efficiency, and it, it was still kind of linking the science to people and to governments, and applied because it was, it was for master students. And so I learned a lot in that experience. But that's I did that in between. Okay,
0: um, and so then you went to AAAS, and how? What was the role of the AAAS fellowship that you had in your career path?
1: Yeah. It was, uh, I triple S was amazing that I recommend to everyone. Mm. It's a great experience. Um, I first, I, it's a very interesting process. Um, I'm not sure if a lot of people know about the triple S, but you start as you, you, you apply and you write an essay, write everything. And then you go through a series of interviews with you know, these panels and you get selected. But then even with after you get selected, you go through a whole week of interviews with different agencies. And then from there, they select you and you select them. So it's not like an automatic, like you're gonna get placed here. You go through this whole interview and getting to know actually during those week or two, all the different types of agencies. And so at that time I was drawn into um and there's different like paths actually you can go to to like development and diplomacy there's like a science one health one I'm sure there's different ones now in a congress one at that time I, I was more into the development and diplomacy that's the leg like, I got into and the environment leg like, I think there was an environment one too and at the end I decided I wanted to do more even though my stuff was more focused on environmental science policy management I wanted to do more of the diplomacy development like so I interviewed at both USAID and state department different offices like one on refugees and conflict climate change and um and different regions and so I ended up um, getting placed in the climate change office which was a great experience and it was like slowly growing then and then um those two years were they were fantastic I got to work and, but still, you have to create that experience for yourself. You could just, uh, that experience, depending on how you take it, you could just sit there and work for that office. Um, but AAAS gives you the freedom of designing your own project. And so me and a couple of other AAAS fellows, we decided to offer our services um, worldwide to help with strategic planning from an outsider. So go to missions and help them if they're stuck. On the process of thinking about their five-year plans, that we would come in and help facilitate those conversations. So bring in those skills that you kind of lurk in academia about bringing consensus, bringing people in the room, thinking about things, peeling that off, you know, like going deep into the issues until, you know, there's some consensus of what you want to work on as your strategy. And so, yeah, we tested with the mission and it went well. And then at the end, I ended up um, going to 20 something different countries and helping draft wow. uh, twenty different strategic plans during those years. So it was, it was great. Like that ended up, um, being my focus of my fellowship. Yeah. Which was amazing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've, I've known a few people, um, who have gone on to do that in DC and they've had like amazing experiences as well. Yeah. Okay. And so what and was was your position at USAID, which I think lasted at least like 10 years, was that your next step?
1: Yeah. So then after that, I decided I really liked um, the overseas component. Mm. And so I thought, how can I how can I make that permanent? (laughs) Like that's my life, right? Okay. (laughs) And um yeah, so it was a trend it was actually a very pivotal moment because I had to decide um at the time I actually my husband in the fellowship so we had to decide and he was already a tenured professor in california and so we had to decide are we moving to california and you know he keeps his department chair job and all that or yeah or do we you know does he quit and we go on this ride in the foreign service
0: together? that's a big that's a big little moment there
1: yeah it was a big moment um and so we scoped we scoped california potential job interests um for me, and he also had done the AAAS, and so we decided, let's just do it. Mm. You know, we gotta, like, let's live, let's do it. And so we did, we joined together. Um, and at first the placed, our placements were apart, but because of the networking we had created, you know, with our strategies, we ended up being able to figure out how to be together. And so we started in uh, Nicaragua together and then we went to Jamaica and then Dominican Republic. Yeah. Um, at the end, it became too hard to have dual. So he left when we were in um, Jamaica, and then I left last December. Um,
0: to have dual, what dual
1: careers in the oh. foreign service? Yeah. Okay. Too difficult. Too difficult.
0: Yeah, in academia we call that like the two body problem of trying to juggle like yeah. each person's everything's. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: They call it like tandem couples and things. So that's that's what I did. Yes. I worked with I was an official like diplomat. It's yeah.
0: Okay. So Esther, I'd like to turn to like the kind of core of questions that I had sent you before this based on this talk that you sent me that you gave to the directors of I think it's called Plan International. Yeah. Um and so in that talk that you sent me, um, you make this, I think, really important distinction between what you learned in the programs that we just talked about and your experiences kind of on the ground. And I think this is something yeah. I as a, as an educator, Esther, I still struggle with this. Like I really value immersive experiential education. and one of my favorite times, like if I'm on an off-campus program, One of my favorite things that can happen is a student says oh that thing that you were like waving your arms about in class that actually matters but it's a lot more complicated too i'm like yes that's correct yes all that's correct but it's just like this challenge of of classroom education that i've struggled with because you know that these ideas matter but you also know that it's a lot more complicated and you're ignoring a lot of stuff that happens in the world yeah because you're not in the world right yeah. now, so I'd love to hear you talk right. about th- your 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 own thinking on this issue and how you experience it at different stages of your career.
1: Yes, yes. Ooh, where do I start? <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I can start with um, I'll start with one concept. I think that I'm I'm really passionate about is listening. So, it sounds very basic. So when you you know when you learn like um basic research methods right and i remember this in my phd right they tell you okay go out listen to their point of view how to do proper interview questions how to record them properly you know all the you know all the tape about like consent and this and this all right right but then in practice though what ends up happening is like when you're actually like in these big donor organizations that time is it's like when you're a phd student you have time you're working on one project for five years and you really think out okay these are the questions i'm going to ask this is what i'm going to do there whatever but in when you're like in a donor organization time time is like you're you're meeting congressional demands you got one fiscal year to make this happen and then within that you got to do a plan to Congress and how you're going to use that money. You got to make a plan of how that money is going to get, you know, match all the regulations, be spent wisely, all the red tape and bureaucracy. Then, you know, then you're like, okay, then I got to go to get it out. You got to make sure it's like competitive and everyone has a fair advantage to it. So there's all these steps. And then when it comes to the actual time that you can actually go out and then I'm going to go procure this, it becomes like um, rather than I'm going to go listen and figure it out, it becomes, a, OK, we only have three months. Let's just put it out there, you know, and see who who applies and then we'll do what tech and then just procure. And this is like the same more or less process. Right. And like most donors, like you know, the World Bank, put something out, the you know, U.S. put something out, the Aussies, the EU, right. You see all these proposals come out and you see the NGOs all coming in, right? I need to submit my grant application or contractors, right? It's the usual cycle. But in those cycles, we start skipping the listening. And so our listening then turns into uh, going in there with our ideas and trying to get feedback, which is not the same as listening. So if you go in there and say, I'm going to I'm going to go to this community and say, look, I have bio, let's say biodiversity money or I don't know, climate change money and be like, okay, we have this money and we want to fund adaptation and we want to fund adaptation that's going to do X, Y, Z, right? You've already come in and introduced to that community, like what you want to do. And mm-hmm. so most of the time, communities then respond going, well, I mean, that's money to my community. And so then they try to fit in what they, what they need into that puzzle. But then it's like everyone trying to fit in like other people's needs and wants into this puzzle piece. And then it becomes like I like to call this spaghetti because then it's like we're coming in there with all these extra pressures, external on what we need to package because those are the new priorities and then we go throw it to a community and then a community is like well I actually what I needed was water and sanitation but let me see how link it to climate, climate adaptation. And so they're only like half getting what they want. But then with, then you see all these articles now then five years later you're like well why isn't that person sustaining it and only sustaining a part of it. And so the part that they keep is the part that they were that they wanted and bought into the first place. So this whole new movement of localization, which, um, I mean, there's a lot of buzz around it. right, in the donor community and everywhere. It's really coming back to these principles that you learn in graduate school and you learn in survey methods or and, and development 101 is we need to like, before we even procure, before we even think about putting a solicitation out or even the community themselves, because I don't want to put this just on the donor. Even the community itself has to do the work within their own system. What is it that we want to do and where do we want to go? Because even in their own communities, the problem is that you can have five, six NGOs, but they're not on the same page and where they want the community and place to go. They're all working um, in silos. And then you go fund one of them. And then the other three are not in the same page. So, that's, um, so that's, the, that's the listening concept. And then I'm kind of feeding into the next concept, which is like on systems, All right. So then the other part is, you know, we talk a lot about in academia or even, you know, in, in the international development space about consensus collaboration, right? Uh, being on the same page, but again, in practice, What does that mean, right? Who are we referring to that needs to be on the same page? So a lot of the relationship management that you see going on is between whatever donor, and that could be even a private. I I also want to bring out, there's a whole other space of faith-based organizations, volunteerism groups, um, private philanthropists, right? You name it, right? Foundations, they're also part of the donor space. They have, right, let's say they have their thing, and they're working with this NGO, right? That relationship is between them and them. But there's this larger system, and and, and that's what I was touching on about these two NGOs aren't on the same page, right? So a system is not just them two, the system is a whole loo of actors within there, right? You have national government, local government, private sector, the community members, the other NGOs in that space, And so when we talk about consensus, a lot of times we focus just on the immediate relationship that we have, ex-donor, ex-beneficiary. But if we don't tackle the whole larger system, then a lot of times, let's say if another party or another person that has different power, maybe more power in that system can dismantle that if they're not in agreement. And so the systems part, thats I think that was also part of the talk I gave, is about Putting it's not just us being facilitators in a space and going, hey, um, do you agree with this? It's having those people in that system talk to each other and agree on a shared vision and mission together. On we are agreeing that this is what we need and want as a unit, as actors in this system. And then that then then people then are funding what the system agrees to. And then that ties into like the conflict mitigation piece okay, which often we also overlook. Um, but I'm going into a lot of themes, but those are like the two top things that in practice, you know that we we oversimplify mm-hmm. and and it requires a lot more effort upfront than we give because we need to give because we have this pressure to give results immediately, and so we we touch those things at a surface because we need to just procure and move on.
0: There's a box that's yeah. Yeah, in need of checking. Um, so Esther, yeah. did, did you say then that these were concepts like listening and systems thinking that you did hear about during your education? And it's just that there's not enough time given these constraints and cycles to really implement them faithfully? because I mean, um, what, what I, think, uh, I asked yeah. because the question I, I thought about was like, what are the implications of this for education? Yeah right? are are there implications, yeah. or is the problem that, well, is the problem that we're not teaching the right ideas in education, or is the problem that we are insufficiently reflecting on how difficult it is to implement these ideas?
1: Those are all good. I think it's a little bit of all.
0: <laughs> okay, <laughs> sure, sure.
1: um so the the listening piece, I, I think that you touch it in, um, like I guess, in survey methods and you touch it in terms of like how to research. So you do touch it during your PhD on like how to collect right data, especially when you're doing interviews, how to properly, you know, unbiased questions and mm-hmm. try not to put too much of your perspective. in. so I think you are kind of taught like the methodology. One thing that I think is missing a lot is um, that I think that Education doesn't super touch on that, would, that. I think is useful, and it's and I and I think it's a lot harder now once you're like I think more more years in the system is um, that you don't need to showcase your knowledge or expertise in that space. So I think that's what's missing, and and I don't know, uh, and that's something that I think can be improved in academia because I think I I felt. And maybe you could reflect on this more. A lot of the, the academic, academic space is about your title. It's about your expertise. It's about your niche. And so when you go out to the field, or even when the classroom, you're like, this is my niche, this is my expertise. And so some of that get, kind of gets a little rubbed off. So when development professionals go into a space or community, whatever that is, they want to exert that too. And so they're like, well, I am a water sanitation specialist. I am a specialist in democracy and governance, right? And in these spaces, when we're doing development, that that really doesn't matter. And so a lot of the untraining and localization is you don't have to bring in your ego. You don't have to bring in anything that you're, you know, you are this person. Good. You know, you don't need to exert it Mm -hmm. because this is about them figuring out that those those actors, what they want to do. And then you are the executor. When you come back, you're going to bring back after listening those ideas and make it happen. But you don't have to exert it in that space because when the minute when you exert it, that whole free conversation and free experiment, you know, that, that freeness that people can feel and actually like figure out what their purpose, mission and vision is gone once you've exerted your power on there. And so that's one part in education that could be drastically improved is like, hey, you know what, I may be a professor right here, but when we go out to the field, our purpose is to understand what their mission and purpose is and make that a reality. It's not about their us showcasing our knowledge or being like, oh, you know, you know what, but I've been to 20 something countries, let me tell you how to really you should do it. I mean actually, you know, you could have um in one and there's this one community, right? That um, latrines, for example, they um this NGO put these beautiful latrines out. And the community tore down six months later and they were they were like, What? I don't understand. They said they needed water sanitation. The community's like, yeah, they were beautiful. We ended up the material, now we're using it on roofs. And it's like, but why why didn't you just tell them like <laughs> that you you know, one, that you needed the roofs more. And then two, that you didn't want it like that. Where they're like, well, they were building. They said they, they knew the best kind and they wanted to build it like that. But they're like, but they didn't realize that we actually wanted a sanitation system that was open. Like we feel claustrophobic. I like seeing the sunrise sunset. So so sometimes like we go in there being like, well, this looked amazing in X place. And this is what you need. And then if the people that are utilizing are not bought in and don't want it, then what was it
0: for? Yeah. Or mm. deep in the weeds now, Esther. Um, so, I mean, I I agree with what you're saying, I, and I think there's a cultural aspect to it, and an aspect that we bring to our, bring ourselves. And, the, and when I think about the culture, it's these professional environments where, as you kind of said, right, your agency and your the the indications of your social worth are your intellect. And your expertise, right? It's a very narrow yeah. range of our identity that's used and va- like used to identify ourselves and valued. And so it does become difficult to avoid this extensive signaling exercise, where people you can kind of you know each of us. And you, no, I don't think you get away from this entirely in that context, because ultimately you know when you're in that context, you do need to represent yourself and be like, hey, here's my yeah. expertise. I'm going to kind of wave it about now. Um but I totally agree with you that it can become problematic and particularly in a space where, you know, the so-called expert is going into a system where they have more agency than a lot of other people there already yeah. because of their kind of, you know, as you said, like the certifications that we, that we get and value so much. And I I, I also think there's a kind of individual aspect to this too, that we bring to ourselves, right? It's like, why, um, why am I needing to signal my social worth to other people right now? What am am I bringing to the table? Um, You know, and I think this gets into, and this is, I think this is, you know, in some ways why it's difficult to teach this because this gets into a lot of issues like self-awareness and how you relate to other people. And, you know, are you imposing your own insecurities on a situation rather than dealing with them yourself so that you cannot have to be so top-down, in that situation. Yeah. Right. Cause I feel like we're, we all kind of watch ourselves. Right. And yeah. so sometimes I feel like people act out because they need to watch themselves have power because they're worried about not having enough.
1: Yeah. And, and why do you need to be validated?
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But that gets into this whole space that professionalization is uncomfortable with because it seems yeah. kind of wishy-washy or emotional or just yeah. I don't all of these words. So I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, sometimes I've thought like, what, you know, one of these, you see these, all these books on leadership in the airport. And I feel like what I really just need in a leader is someone who's well-therapized. Just like, <laughs> tell, tell me that you went and saw a therapist for like 10 years and worked out all your stuff. And like, then I'll trust you then. Like, you won't bring <laughs> your your own stuff to the table and we can work together. Okay. So, but um, there are a couple other concepts that I wanted to talk to you about from that talk you gave. And uh one of them was um development fatigue, and you you synonymize yes. this with desensitization. yeah, so let's actually talk about that before we get to the other the other concept because it, it um I've not been in this space like I've been adjacent to the development space in my own work, but I've not really sunk my teeth into it for like in its own right for like many years, so i I'm aware that I could be projecting. A bit, but I feel like there's this sense of a romance or a glamour in aid and development. And I and I said this to you in my notes, but I, I have some there's some recency bias because I just read this book, The Idealist about Jeffrey Sachs by Nina Monk. And there is this sense of him being treated as this kind of warrior mm-hmm. king savior. And you could see that being. I mean, in a way, this relates to what we were just talking about, too, right? What are the motivations for someone to get into something? And that book is reasonably critical of Jeffrey Sachs. Maybe some of it unfair. I'm not sure. I don't know the case well enough. But it did seem like there was this skepticism about the ultimate motivations of doing this work. So there's this idea I have in my head that that for some people, I have this hypothesis that some people get into some of this for not the right reasons that can sustain them once they actually have to get into the space and do a lot of the work. And that's a hypothesis slash question to you. And I'm wondering then how that might engage with this concept you mentioned, which is kind of development fatigue, that once you're in this space, it really wears people down, which is something I think you hear about, not just in aid and development, right? But But in any sector where you're really trying to help people. Yeah, And activism in lots of places you hear about people just getting kind of worn down because it's so exhausting to kind of do the work that you want to believe in, but you, but it's difficult to really affect change. So now I've taken my turn to throw a whole bunch of stuff at you. Um, <laughs> so I'd be interested in your reactions well, on, on multiple pieces of that.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it still goes back kind of to the same thing about the mission, vision, and purpose. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why I'm really, really passionate about people figuring out their own mission and vision and purpose. And before they even go into development or before you go into philanthropy, um, because it's exactly that. So if you talk to most anybody, everyone's like, I want to help the majority of people. I want to give back. I want to help. Okay. And then when you ask them how, like, I, I think like, um, I also coach, like I also do some coaching right in there. A lot of them are like, oh, and I want to start own, my own foundation, my own philanthropy with their own lens of what they think the world needs. Right. So the fatigue comes in, I think, is this disconnect between you and the beneficiary. So the every single person has their own lens of what their world needs, and they want to either make a lot of money or to give back, like to start a foundation and to give, and they want to go help people in their way that they think they think they want to help. Or, you know, other donors or countries are listening in a bigger scale, bigger scale right? Or church groups, faith groups, everything, right? They want to do the same thing. I want to give back and give back. But I think the problem is, is that everything is like on my lens. And so then you go to whatever beneficiary and you're, you're imposing. So I, I think about it the same way as social constructs. That it's like your parents imposing their dream on you. It's like society imposing their tick their check marks on you. And then at first you don't know, so you take it. You're like, well, this seems right because they're they got it together. They have my best interests. So I'm gonna follow along. And at some point in your life, you know, if you think about it on an individual level, you start questioning, is this where I wanted to go? Is this really what I wanted? And you start pivoting and and trying to figure out what is it that I want. And and I think that that same type of dynamic happens at the community level. We come in with what we want to help them with. And if they haven't done that work themselves on like what they want, they take it because they assume like, well, that's greener, uh, how they define what's greener, you know, or like define as kids, like they know what's fast initially, they take it in, but then later, are like, actually, we kind of needed this. Actually, it doesn't really fit in our thing. And that's where the fatigue comes in. And I think it's the same fatigue that people feel when they follow the check marks without thinking about whether it aligns with them or not. You start to get tired because it's not really aligned with where you want it to go. And so I make a lot of that connection. um, And and that's like the approach I tested in the DR. Like, what if we actually fund things that people want to need? What if we actually do that? Let's test it and see what happens. And and, and I mean I know we're gonna connect to that later, but that's how I met Freddie, right? I was like, let's just test it. Let's really not go in with any of our stuff and see what happens. Let's see if the community sustains it. See if they own it and they want it. Like really just go in blank. Okay. And you know, and we showed that it did work, but I mean it does take a lot of work because that that also it's a two it requires two people two and two i want to say it's not individuals but it requires the other part of that relationship to also do that work as well as you right yeah um but that fatigue is that it's it comes on so many levels it comes from the community level of being tired of not seeing the results that they want to see And then that, you know, tired of also like maybe not aligning or all these groups coming in with their ideas, but still not necessarily fitting what they wanted. And then, you know, back, backward tracking and then forward tracking and then frustrated because it's not at the five or 10 years where they want it to be or, or their voice being heard over time. And then like fatigue from the development, because let's say you do go in and you do something for five years and then you see it's not sustained after you worked like 12, 15 hours on these projects, that hurts too, because you like invested your life, you've moved your family, you're working on this thing, and then you see it kind of die out. That's a fatigue on the person as well, or mm-hmm. even the foundation or the donor. And so like the fatigue is all around. And, you know, and you see people kind of burn out, freaking frustrated. And so then, and then you see like, sadly, I think that was part of the talk I gave, is that you forget why you started in the beginning and then you just kind of become like a hamster, you know, in the wheel, right? You're, I forget how that expression goes, but you just start doing like, okay, let's procure, let's put out this, let's let's just move things along and you've lost, you've disconnected yourself to the reason why you started to begin with. And the same with communities, which is like, well, someone else will come in. Um, sure, give me the money. And right. it just becomes like a sustaining thing. Like, I just need to... I just need money to do five more years of the same and, and, and like you're the dream and vision of that community where they wanted to go has actually gone too. Now it's just about, I need to just maintain. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You're what you're saying is, is really quite synergistic with this uh, field of study that I learned a year or two ago called the theory of self-determination. Um, the two it's these two psychologists out of University University of Rochester, Ryan and DC, and they argue that human beings have like three fundamental needs: um, belonging, um efficacy, and autonomy. And the way they define autonomy is not through a sense of like it's not a negative liberty or negative autonomy of being free from constraint, but it's a positive feeling of your actions being aligned with your sense of self and values. Yeah. And so they argue exactly. that when you feel autonomous, you feel much more intrinsically motivated to, to yeah. keep on doing what you're doing. And without that sense over time, you can stagnate. And so like what you were saying is like resonates very strongly with that an entire branch of research that I just became aware of. So that's satisfying. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, so and you mentioned your work in the Dominican Republic. And so I'd like to ask um I'd like to move to that soon. Sure. But you I, I don't want to skip over this other term. It feels like we've been kind of talking yeah. about it, but this idea of you you asked, like, is is are we is are we being colonial? This is kind of a neocolonialism yeah. with aid. And yeah you know, when I hear that, I think, okay, but so how do you make a, how do you kind of decolonialize aid? And so far in what you've been saying, you know, when you talk about kind of being top down, coming in, not listening, telling people what they need, that sounds like maybe that's where you're, you're, yeah. what you're thinking about, but I'd love to just hear you, you uh, yeah. explicitly talk about what that, what, what the power of that word is for you and, and how it's important.
1: Yeah. so that's like another movement as it's, Linked with the localization, right? It's about shifting the power, shifting the power back to local actors, allowing them to take ownership of their development, right? and then re really take the role of donors. and And to tie in back a little bit about it's also shifting on on um, the value what we value. So I think we talked about a little bit, like you know how we value titles or expertise. Um, but we like, you know, let's say you, you go through a PhD program, you learn how to problem solve, you learn how to put, um, strategically think, right. You learn how to like, I'm going to put all these ideas and help people come up with an umbrella term. Right. And so it's also realizing that it's, it's not, you don't have to come in with like your, your sectoral expert expertise. You can actually help actually just facilitate those conversations with them talking to each other and come up with these umbrella terms. It's like utilizing your skills you can still bring in, like you were mentioning those conversations, but different skill sets that it's not like you imposing your power. You're actually just helping facilitate right those conversations and, and those dynamics. Right. Yeah. Um, But it's that it's like, instead of moving from this whole, I, I'm going to bring my cooked in idea to you. We're going to, I'm going to listen to you. And it's like, it's the power is in yours and i'm just like going to fund it right so it's just shifting that power dynamic and i think an interesting question that came out um that was asked to me actually in that plan international talk was okay so let's say we shift that power how do we still respond to global priorities and we still have like a huge top down from our funders whoever that is right a person so this this localization movement hasn't reached everyone. So there's still people who are big philanthropists who say, I want you to fund X. So how do you like merge the two? And and that's what development practitioners really struggle with. Like, great, you know, great, that's where I agree with you or I agree with the whole localization movement. But in practice, I have to respond to these people and show how their money's being used. so the, the one answer I give them is because, you know, I, I kind of lived that too, you know, with my job, but how I saw it was, look, I'm going to take this time to listen and not just in one region, in a whole series of places, look at all the themes that come out and find where those themes overlap. And that's where we can use our expertise right, as development practitioners We can be like, hey, we can put these two together, right? So if I know that Congress or whatever wants me to work on I, don't know. I keep going back to environmental team themes because that's, that's what I'm familiar with. But let's say like biodiversity. If I work in a community, if I see in all those interviews, right? A community that's like our mission and vision is to protect biodiversity. There you go. That's your mirror. It's not like you're not putting a peg, right? You're you're actually like, hey, these two fits. I'm gonna, it's kind of like when you link people together on LinkedIn, I'm gonna link you, you, know? you link it rather than top down it's like an actual like equal equal connection
0: it's like matchmaking
1: like matchmaking right but it does take time because you can't just like i'm gonna go pick x community no you have to know that space and put people together and then from there make these connections And then, and but, and if you're all working together in your organization, which is another separate thing, right? It also, this whole movement encourages us also like, because even in organizations and in academia, everyone works in their own silo space. If we actually like shifted that dynamic as well and worked together and we're all, you know, we're all visiting and listening to different communities, right? If we all would share that, work together and be like, hey, look, I can link you with this group because you know what they're 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 voicing that they want this hey maybe this is something that you know can match with you or match with this person or match with this office and this space right so it's rather than like everyone trying to ping make something fit you're you're actually working backwards where you're going to make all those you're gonna hear all those it's kind of like backwards it's basically shifting it so instead Mm -hmm. of top down we're going bottom bottom up so
0: that's not decolonization. Like okay. So getting back to the city of localization, Esther, I do want to ask it sounds great, right? I, I when I hear you talk, I, I feel supportive. Um yeah. you're you're kind of tep- you're, you know, ticking all my boxes of like, oh yes, we need to be less top down. Oh yes, like there's this danger of like using keywords yeah. and ju- how do we avoid localization becoming like the next keyword? that gets used purely instrumentally to check boxes because that was part of the critique to lead to that, but you could see that being swallowed up by the larger apparatus.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, and I think that will happen, sadly, um, because there's different ways. I think there's a friction, but I think it still comes down to that, that friction of I don't have time to do the whole process. Right. Like, I don't have time to go do the full listening. I don't have time to do the whole systems work. And and I'm talking any scale. I'm talking from even like a volunteerism group going down from all the way to a big organization. It's, even I was talking to a professor that runs like a development program with students. I was like, yeah, you you have to go and like the community should agree with what the students, the high school, or the college students are going to work on, right? So even that's like, oh, well, but, that adds more time we only have a year semester but it's but I think you can be creative you can be like okay well you're maybe the whole first year you're just gonna do listening with that first year group then the second year that comes in they're gonna learn systems, so they won't learn that whole process but you can go through that process with the community and whatever students are in will will participate in part of that process right um but I think that's gonna always be a friction because everyone wants to experience the whole thing and 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 wants it all now and needs it all now or they're you know they're faced with demands and and so I think it's sometimes I think that the key word is going to be hard because people are gonna say well I'm working with a local organization that counts I won't, right. you know I'm stopped I've stopped the wording big contractors that counts right or. I, I, and then, and then there's all this controversy on what listening means, right? They're going to be like, well, I went to the community and got feedback that counts. Right.
0: Right. What do you mean? I, mean, I, 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 I listened. What do you want from me? Yeah.
1: yeah. I think inevitably we are going to face that, but I think it's, um, we have to at least try, mm-hmm. try and keep proving that I think as more studies come out of people really like putting this in practice and showing, Hey, you know, look, over over five years when we actually do it from the beginning like that look at the change this community or place has gone through and then if you actually know as we have more data showing that difference between the status quo way we've been doing I think until then so it's it's going to be a while to see that change
0: (laughs) well I feel like one thing go ahead sorry
1: no, no, I was just gonna say that's why for me, like I I combine it. Um, you know, we talk about this about like your like your own mission, purpose, vision thing, you know, like for me, I knew that it wasn't enough just for me to stay working in government. And that's and that's why I got out of the foreign service. I knew that this had to be a larger movement and you had to, I had to not only work on this side of development, but I had to also work with people. Mm-hmm. And like that's why I do that coaching part. So that they understand how difficult it is just to even figure out for yourself what you want to do. And like by going through that process of you figuring out what your purpose, mission, vision, you have a better appreciation on how hard it is to then go to someone else or why you need to go and figure, you know, if you, you can't just go to someone and give an idea, you have to allow them the space once they figure out how it's opened them. So like for me, it's like you I I I have seen for myself, it has to be both.
0: Yeah, the why question is a really challenging one. I'm trying to avoid asking it of myself during this conversation. <laughs> um, so can we can we? I want to make sure that we have time to talk about yeah, um, your work in the Dominican Republic. We met through Freddie Payton, who is the director yes. of the NGO Agrofontera. Um, can you talk to me about how you met Freddie and and yeah, how you also implemented some of these ideas in the Dominican Republic?
1: Yeah. So I had a really unique opportunity in the Dominican Republic. I had these fabulous leaders there, um, leadership. And basically they gave me free reigns to test this approach, which was great. So that began with first applying for some seed money, which I did to go do a whole full listening tour in the border. So with my small team then, we went and did... um, thousands of interviews and did a whole thing for a year all along the border region from north to south and to understand like themes and what their needs were, practice listening, you know, and we had to make adjustments along the way and reflect on it. And it wasn't just the communities because we also mapped out the system, right? So we needed, we knew we needed to talk to local government, national government, private sector, like all the actors in that space to see What, why did development fail before in the border region? You know, and and even, even NGOs, right? What, what was going on there? What were the challenges and the barriers, right? If we were to work here, what would they recommend? What did they learn from it? And then from the community themselves, what, what, like their fatigued, talk to me about your fatigue. Why, why do you think it hasn't worked? What, what do you think you need or what do you want and what has happened? And, um, so that's that led to really great um, information. And we then understood the themes. A lot of the bigger themes from all those interviews was there was a disconnect between the communities, local government, national government. So even um, for example, the at that time, and a lot of changes have happened since then, even with this, with the work. But back then it was like this whole thing like, you know, national government would have this fund. And they would fund things in the community and the community would pick a lotto and they would say oh i with a lot of money it's like a participation fund i'm going to build a school they would build the school and then the government wouldn't send them teachers because and then the government's point of view is why i mean there's a school a mile away that's not part of our strategic plan why would you build the school and so then they would have to go and get more money or another you know, entity would have to come in and repurpose what they built. And so like, that seemed to be like the cycle. So When you go to the border, you see a lot of like, uh, you know, uh, abandoned like half made schools, you know, half made clinics. And it's from this lack of system lens, right. Looking at the systems and collaborating and all that. So that came out as a big, big, uh, theme. And so how I met, um, Friday is that we, we started to see the importance of having these uh, bridge leaders between like to create these the systems, the, these, create these networks within the system. To bring actors together was like a real, it's a real pain point for all these different entities. And in that I met Robinson. So mm. it, it's part of that and he was this bridge leader. Yes. Like he could bring people together and talk about issues. So when I first met with him, he was like, he had this whole, um, and I, and I believe Freddie was there his whole first, it, it was interesting because he, he had a presentation already set thinking what donors wanted to hear.
0: And so Robinson and works it. for Freddie, for Agrofantetta is to, yes. for listeners. Yep.
1: Oh yeah. And he had this whole presentation set for us. And then I told him oh, that was beautiful. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, so, but what do you really need and want? I want you just to free space. We're really actually here to listen, with no agenda. And then he went. He went completely open, and so did the fishermen.
0: <laughs> I can just and, imagine. And
1: then, yeah. And so, even though he gave, he, but I could tell we knew there that he was a leader and a space, and people were trusted because he gave the green light for the others to voice. Mm-hmm. And then it became a conversation about health, the dysfunctional health system, and how the government doesn't provide them the resources they need. It became a conversation about park fees, right? And so the presentation initially was a very uh, dictated, like, you know, we want funding for X. And then it turned into a lot more of this open conversation of all uh, the struggles and barriers that they were seeing in their province and how they felt abandoned by the government and not prioritized and everything, right? and so that's how when when we met him and we saw it what we were what we were looking for was system actors how we were trying to understand we needed bridge leaders and so at that moment we were like he's the one at least like one of the one of the we found one of the ones yep, yep, one of the ones one of the ones and um we're like he he's he can bring people together and 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 they can you know at least get actors together to get on the same page and discuss and like bring these ideas to life and so that's how we first met them and um so we found a way to at that time there was like you know biodiversity in this so at first it, we in the office we had just this seed money, and then more we saw that it tied everything they were doing there to larger priorities, right? I was able to bring in the you new know, biodiversity money, water sanitation money, and so like like all of these things intersected, right? So like you can't protect the corals without addressing water and sanitation, mm-hmm. and you can't address those issues without conflict mitigation, and so like that that's how I got I was able to apply and pull in these different funds. And then start little by little creating a five-year strategy. This is what we're going to do in the border region. Always with the lens, the system lens of connecting actors, right? Because that—that was the pain point from all the interviews. It didn't matter what sector they needed that linkage. So, for like everything, in the lens is going to be connecting communities with local government, with national government, creating these feed loop, feedback loops and private sector. And but within these different and all and connecting these sectors together and showing one picture. So we picked like the border, but then I was able to build an office filled with all these different pots of money with the, with one focus of developing the border region. So we have biodiversity, we have wash, wash which is our sanitation. We had um, local works, which is the community part. So we had like, so Friday and Agro Frontera had both local works and biodiversity funding. And then we had another partner that worked on water sanitation on the watershed, right? That would lead into the water, you know, to the watershed of Montegristi. And so we had all the actors working parallel, right? And to have one impact in one system. Um, but that's how I met him. So we really needed those actors. So he then, you know, we started doing whole system in the room approaches, bringing, bringing the actors together to speak about issues, right? Bringing the NGOs together because that was a conflictual kind of tension also in that space. Um, also, there was like the whole thing of doing binational. We were doing that before things got um, yeah, it was, security in Haiti. But I was wondering about
0: Friday, that. Yeah. Because I mean, we, the, the border region here, we're talking about the border between the Dominican Republic and Haiti. So I was wondering. Yeah. It, I mean, I've also heard that it has gotten much more challenging to work in Haiti. So I was wondering how that fit in.
1: Yeah. And so we, at first, it was a completely binational program. So we, we actually oh, okay. traveled to Haiti. Yeah, we traveled to Haiti and they also traveled to the DR. We had both, both entities working together. Um, they also used to work on similar um, within the Bay. Uh, but then it got more challenging, harder. So then our focus kind of went more onto the DR side of the border, just because we couldn't travel anymore to Haiti. Uh, but there are, there was still, by the time I left, there was still some um binational work. And even with the government space, so parallel to the work going on in the communities, we also supported the national government in elevating their um, border observatory so that they could be a stronger support system, right, to the local and local government and communities. So elevating their presence amongst donors, also with on donors, uh, so that donors would recognize them as leading entities. That was another power shift as well. You know, normally donors are the ones who do the donor coordination, who do the, um, hold the reports. And so a lot of this, sh- the work also was shifting the power to the government. Hey, like they have a border of team. We are going to share our reports with them. They are going to lead the donor coordination with us. And so they are then the housing, the information, the lead coordinating unit, right? So the whole like program was about shifting the power, right? So we went from um, a $700,000 program to 80 million. And we tripled the size of the office. Yeah. So that was, I learned, I learned a lot in those years, how to grow an office, how to grow a team. And this is all
0: while you're still working at USAID, right?
1: Yeah. So okay. I built that with my yeah. team. Yeah. Okay. So I started, yeah. Then I started that. And then I, so I built this, I built the whole office, the strategy for it. And so that was over five years. So, I mean, it does take time. It yeah. took five years to build that out. And then also build out and train, um, right. And hire team members and get everyone, that also requires everyone, on the team, to be on the same mission and vision as well, and understanding of all of these interconnected pieces.
0: Your description of this, Esther, is, I mean, it reminds me of the question I asked you before about how do you avoid a kind of checkbox approach to um, this localization movement? And I feel like, in part, you're answering that. Right? You need you kind of you need to do the work. Like it can't yeah. become a shortcut, yeah. and you need. I mean, I'm also thinking about your role in the system, you know, we sometimes talk about the need for local champions who have deeply internalized the values yeah. that they want to promote in the system. And so to have someone like that, and I'm kind of projecting yes. that identity onto you now. Um, you really no, kind of true. need someone like that. I mean, and yeah. and it sounds like, I mean, I also ask a lot of guests this, whether they perceive themselves as being what I, it's not my term, um, in the Feel we call a boundary actor, someone who connects different groups, and it sounds like there was a lot of that. We I think about yeah. that when we think about conflict management. So you need to have a lot of these, just pretty intensely demanding emotional interpersonal skills to make all that happen as a local champion as well.
1: Yes, and and that also gives you fatigue. <laughs> I mean, yes, I I fought a lot of fights, faced a lot of resistance because it was something new and people resist change. And so I even got like, I even got like a certification in change management and systems thinking just to have more tools in my tool belt on, you know, facing and and handling the resistance. Because once I could, I would have to get buy-in and share visioning, even in my own organization, right? Because they're like seeing both, they're seeing these all these mixed funding that that, like, why do you have pieces of all this funding? And, and so you had to like, learn how to like, okay, I need to have a solid message. I need to tie it into, uh, the larger priorities that are important to them. I need to show how it, how it does like benefit them as well. And so there's a lot of like, um, your messaging communication, even, even up. So it's like lateral up sideways, down diagonal and, and making sure that you're still responding to your host external system, but also internal system. Um, I think it's easier now though, because then the localization movement term was not yet out. So we, we, we were calling it then locally led development. And it still wasn't like this priority now that's blown up like worldwide. Right. I mean, I kind of feel like this is a repeat of my life in my PhD program where I was into environmental science before it came out. And then I would have made my life easier too. <laughs> but
0: to so have it, that it wave.
1: Was, <laughs> yeah. So even the system's thinking people were fighting, you know, fighting against it. Cause they're like, what do you mean you're going to create these maps and do these things? Like we don't, you know, we, we don't do that. And now it's becoming more okay. um, popular and used. Um, but yeah, it's it is a lot of you have to be you have to make a case as to why putting in that work and waiting to procure that money will will lead to results right. And yeah,
0: you need to make your work on the ground legible to folks who aren't yes. on the ground so they can interpret yes. what you're saying and put it in their own framework.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. and be okay with it and and be willing to also. Um, advocate with you, right? Cause I mean, mm. they're also getting pushed back in demand. So they have to have the solid messaging to also be like, hey, no, no, no. Right. She's got it under control and it makes sense, right? right. So you have to um, communicate.
0: So Esther, I know we're starting to run out of time. You are still in the Dominican Republic, but you have less left yeah. USAID. So can I ask you yes. what, you know, how are you moving forward with this work in the Dominican Republic? What are the steps that you want to take to continue to fulfill these values?
1: Yes, yes. So I, yes, I finished my tenure at the DR, and I had to make a decision whether I was going to stay in the Foreign Service or not. Um, I decided after building that program, which was really, really satisfying, um, because now the government runs it on its own. It's really amazing. you know and Dominican the Dominican government. Yeah, they have like wow. a whole new strategy on the border, that border observatory grew. and so you start to see that, hey, when you actually shift the power, great, you know great things happen. and we were able to make private sector actually leveraging and funding, and they funded a bunch of um, activities as well. So I decided to stay um, and quit. And actually, um, now what I do is, um, I also wanted the, I I realized when I did my own purpose exercise, I wanted my impact to be larger. And uh, more on this movement so that other people that really want to push this work forward don't face the resistance that I faced. And so my work now is that I'm a contractor. And so I do contract with um, USAID, the localization team. Um, So I do that during the day and really look at how do we change policies? How do we change things in the organization to make it easier for folks that want to do this type of work, which is really great. And then the other part is that I have the freedom now as a, as a contractor in a space to do my own coaching business and helping people figure out their purpose, mission, vision, and not just people, but like NGOs and communities and like, Really expand localization larger. Like, really, I want to create. and I think we've talked about localization school, you know, which we have mm-hmm. a curriculum where people can go in. It's not a. It's not about whether you're in USAID or World Bank or anything. You could be part of like a faith-based organization. You could be someone who likes to volunteer. They're just is interested in making an impact. And and I think that's something that made me really want to stay in the DR because uh, Montecristi has shown to be an example of where localization works and how mm. they've made it work, how they how they figured it out for themselves, how they learned how to use their own voice. And since they were there from day one, right, they talk a lot about that. You know, Robinson's really vocal about that shift in power. It was the first time ever in his life that he saw it, someone, like, even, you know, whether it's an agency, philanthropist, anything that came in and was like, I actually want to just listen to you. And that, like, stayed impacted, you know, like, that impacted him. Um, and so I think it's like a... I wouldn't say i don't want to say it's a model it's more of an it's just really time to reflect as as a practitioner if you're interested in this and how to apply these approaches and how it really works in the field and really reflect on it
0: it's interesting the listening part when you were talking about that earlier i mean it, it totally makes sense that it can get it's it's understandable that it could get crowded out by all the exigencies of funding cycles and deadlines and all this stuff. At the same time, right? I feel like the psychological theory is pretty intuitive. People want to yeah. be listened to. They want their perspectives to be valued and they want to feel like they're genuinely participating in something by people who are equal partners. Like, yes. I don't think you need a PhD to understand that. And yeah. it's, it, but the exactly. challenging part is why we still get so far away from that so much of the time. yeah
1: mm-hmm. and that's why I think it's open to anyone. You know, and I think that's, that's, that's why I really move towards this whole thing about, because really the biggest groups that go to the border are really these, actually these high school groups and volunteerism groups that from the U S right. It's not necessarily, I mean, the donors maybe give the larger cash, but they come in, like those groups are the ones that are really, they're more in person. And so that's when I realized it has to be much bigger than that. It has to be more of a movement for old people. Like if you've never even studied development, it's more, you know, how do you, you want to help, how to help in a way that's actually helping the other person and not you imposing, right, your ideas. And actually in the end, you just want to help. And so you you might not even know that you're doing it, you know, and so, yeah, Yeah. that's my new, that's, that's what I do now.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, InCommonPodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.